For those of you who are visiting with us, we uh, are grateful to have you here. Uh, we are in the in the middle of a series that we're doing on worship, and we're uh, continuing that uh, this morning with a sermon entitled "Misunderstanding Worship." How much do you exercise every day? That's a question that a researcher asked a group of folks who worked in the house cleaning department of a large hotel chain. In estimating the total amount of minutes that they spent in exercising, the average was somewhere between 0 to 20 minutes a day. But what's interesting is the researcher had already figured out before doing the survey how how many calories that they would burn walking back and forth between the, the cart and the room making beds, scrubbing toilets, scrubbing showers, and all of that sort of thing. And he already knew that most of them, on average, would do more exercise than a person who sat at their office all day and then went to the gym for one hour a day. But the problem was that these women only associated exercise with one single item, being at a gym. It was something that happened at a specific time and place and not all the activities that's associated with what you do in everyday life. I think that we in the church today suffer from a similar problem in which we too narrowly understand worship as a specific event that happens at a specific time and place. It's not unusual we'll hear questions like, where do you worship? Or what time does worship start? Or can we have lunch after worship? You see, we tend to associate worship with something that happens at a specific time and at a specific place. And we're not the first ones to do this. Even through the Old Testament, it seems that there's a theme that people seem to disassociate what happened Monday through um, through the remainder of their week with what happened in a time of formal worship. We'll use the example of Amos and the people during his day. Amos tells us on Sunday they would gather for um, their solemn assemblies, for their burnt offerings, their grain offerings, for their offerings of well-being, where they offered their fatted animals, they sang pleasant songs, and they played delightful harps. But it was then on Sunday that they would show hatred to the one who corrects them at the gate. On Monday, they would turn against the one who would speak truth to them. On Tuesday, they would trample the poor. On Wednesday, they would take the grain of the poor. On Thursday, they would afflict the righteous. On Friday, they would take a bribe. Uh, But then again, on Saturday, they met for solemn assemblies. They offered burnt offerings and grain offerings They offered their well-pleasing offerings of the fatted animals. They sang their pleasant songs, and they played their delightful harps. And what does God think about this? Amos chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offering of well-being of your fatted animals... I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What God was wanting was for every aspect of their life to be viewed as worship. But what they did was focus too narrowly on something that happened in a specific time. 
and at a specific place. See, in the New Testament, we're fortunate because we don't have this thing that was the chief temptation for them, this cultic or formal aspect of worship. See, what happens with the temple is it is replaced with Jesus. All these ritualistic elements like veils and incense and gold and everything, they're done away with. The priests who perform these ritualistic acts are now replaced with the new priesthood of all believers. The Levitical system with its sacrifices is replaced with the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb. And Jesus spoke about this time when he said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And Jesus is already beginning this movement away from worship being something located to a specific time and a specific place. See, we find that much of the New Testament emphasizes the fact that all of life is worship. The worship is not just set aside by specifics. We saw an example of that in the text that was read this morning where Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What Paul does here is he takes language that was associated with this formal worship of the Old Testament, and he now brings it into a brand new context. He takes that same word that they would understand as something that happens in a time and place, and he now opens up into a broad way in saying that every part of your life is spiritual worship. Paul will go on in just a few verses, 9 through 13, and he's going to describe what it looks like to be a living sacrifice, who's living in a holy and acceptable way to God. What does spiritual worship look like? Paul will say, Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing each other honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent, ardent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. See, Paul is wanting us to recognize that there is a very strong connection with everyday life. And what we do in our worship. There is in fact no pause button in worship. That There's nothing that's to say, well, right now I'm not worshiping, but later I will be. And we find that there's also no play button when it comes to worship. As if I'm now starting or beginning worship. See, one of the things that we come to find is we've become like this housekeeping staff when it comes to worship that we find it happening only in a specific time and place. And I wonder what it would look like if we revisit our language from starting worship to continuing worship. And I'm just as guilty as anyone in using that language, but perhaps a reminder that it's not as, we've, as if we've gone from a state of not worshiping to a state of worshiping, and we're going to return shortly to a state of not worshiping. We've gone from worshipers who are now worshiping and who will continue to worship. See, perhaps we, instead of saying things like, as we begin our worship, or after this prayer, we will start to worship. We need to look at using transition language. It helps us to realize all of life is worship. Some individual, and some that we do corporately together. Now, I'm just thankful that you have me here to read your minds. Because I know exactly what some of you are thinking. 
Some of you, from the very moment I said all of life is worship, you got that little knot in your stomach and said, oh, no, not another one of these sermons that tells us how this is not important what we do. Others of you, it took a little more time as Craig was talking along. You're, yeah, yeah, that's right. And then you started thinking, yes, but, yes, but, when is Craig going to get there? And there's even others of you who have been thinking, that's what I've been wanting somebody to say all along. Because I worship God just as well at the mountains, specifically if I have a bow or a shotgun in my hand. And I worship Him just as well at the lake, especially if I have a fishing rod in my hand, as I do when we come together. So we have to ask the question, is all of life worship or not? And if so, what about the times when we assemble together? Which is most important? The answer, as you can probably guess, is both. Don't I love that answer for everything? I agree 100% with the notion that God can be worshipped in your home, on a hunt, while hiking, and while fishing. I believe that we can find uh, God's work powerfully. We can recognize His glory when we are in nature and when we are by ourselves. I believe 100% that we find God here corporately when we worship together. The discussion is not one or the other. It is not to say, should I worship God on the mountains or should I worship Him in the church? The answer, of course, should be both. It's about finding a rhythm in our lives where we have times of individual worship, but we have times when we come together with the body. See, any good thing can become a bad thing if we don't recognize its counter element. Think about sleep, for example. Is sleep a good thing? Perhaps we could ask Cindy Trapp that question. Yes, sleep is a good thing. But what if you sleep all day? That is not a good thing. Is it good to be awake? Yes, it's good to be awake and to be active and be doing things. But what if you're always awake and always active and never sleeping? That's a bad thing. See, it's not about finding one or the other, but finding a rhythm between private and corporate worship. Both are needed, and neither needs to be done to the exclusion of the other. But I do want to address what I think is a growing tendency in our culture to undervalue the role of our corporate activities within the church community. It's what I'm going to call for this sermon the My God and I Syndrome, wherein we minimize the role of assembling together. And so I'm going to just simply point out what I think are two false assumptions about this syndrome that seems to be uh, affecting us. The first is that it views worship only as a direct two-party transaction of adoration and response. God blesses me with something, I say thank you to him, and that's worship. There is some worship in the Bible that is a direct two-party transaction, but most often worship is seen as a three-party transaction between God, myself, and other people. God blesses us, and it is in addition to offer, offering him the direct thanksgiving, we also offer thanksgiving through our relationship with other people. That's how we display our thanksgiving, is in our relationship to the community of believers and to the world. There's an example where we see both of these in Hebrews. And so Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 15, says, Through him, then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that confess his name. 
Again, Paul, or again, the writer of Hebrews takes a word that was associated with the Old Testament formal worship, sacrifice, and he brings it now forward to this sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And as we read that, we say, that's something I can do by myself. I can confess his name by myself, and that's fruit that he receives when I do that. That's an offering of sacrifice. But then look at the very next verse. Verse 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So we see direct worship in the one case with the fruit of our lips, and the other is indirect in that we show and we do things of sacrifice that we do good to others and we share what we have. These also are sacrifices. So in addition to offering direct praise, we also offer indirect praise by how we show love, care, and kindness to the community of God. The illustration I've used in the past is that of a, a single woman with a child. And if she is looking for someone who, who, who maybe she will enter into a more serious relationship with, and he treats her great, but does not treat the kid great, he loves her, but he has, wants to have nothing to do with the kid, that relationship won't work. It cannot be a one-way transaction. Instead, we recognize it has to be two-way. Not only does he have to love her and treat her well, he must love her son and treat him well as well. Sometimes we find uh, ourselves more like our relationship with God is just about how I treat God, but God's, our love and appreciation for him is shown in how we treat each other. God is just as concerned about how his children are being treated by us, not just how we speak to him and what we have to say to him directly. Now, the second false assumption, I'm going to put it up here. And then I'm going to duck and cover for a few minutes until everyone processes this. The primary reason why Christians come together is worship. That's the false assumption. Say, that's not the false assumption. That is why we come together. I have spent uh, probably, it's been about six weeks, reading this similar thought and argument and disagreeing with it every time until this week. I think I finally put a piece of the puzzle together and I understand what people are saying when they talk about the function of community and coming together. So bear with me as I unpack this notion that we think the primary reason we come here is for worship. We're going to begin with the question, why did early Christians come together? What was their primary purpose of coming together? So here we're going to give an example of some things that happen on a date. You might go to a movie, you might have dinner, and you might go for a walk. All of those activities included are a date. But now, what would happen if you wanted to get to know someone better, and they meet you at the movie theater, and you watch a movie, and right after the movie, they leave? You did something that is a part of a date, but it might be hard to call that a date because you don't even know anything about them, which seems to be the purpose or the function. Sometimes we take the elements of something, and we say this is representative of the whole. And so of worship, we want to ask the question, when we come together, what is the primary thing that we do here? So if we think about worship, we say, are we coming together? And one of the things that we do when we come together is worship. Or are we worshiping? And in order to do that, we need to come together. Which of these understandings is more faithful to the New Testament? So there are in the New Testament these worship words. We can call them worship clusters. These words that come again from that Old Testament formal worship. And they are now being brought and used into a New Testament context. But most often... We will find those words used in all of life as worship contexts. These are not the words that are used to describe in general this whole thing of what we are doing together. 
Here instead are the kinds of clusters that we find being used. Acts chapter 11, verses 25 and following. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Now, from an Old Testament perspective, the word we would expect to be used where you see met that is underlined is one of the worship cluster words, where they worshiped, where they offered sacrifices. I mean, that would be the primary reason for coming together. But here instead, we find the word that belongs in a coming together cluster. These words you see on the outside are some of the Greek words you'll find used. See, what they predominantly did was they met together. That was the focus The purpose of why they came together was so that they could then come together. And when they were together, what they would do is they would worship. See, we use these words interchangeably. We would say, I've been worshiping with this group for a year. But that's actually not New Testament language. Another example, Acts 4.28. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Again, what word would we typically substitute there? The place where they had worshipped was shaken, but they don't borrow that Old Testament worship language. Another example, 1 Corinthians 11, 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About all the other things, I will give you instructions when I come. Again, these are texts where we would expect there to be direct worship language. Instead, there is a coming together language that is used. Now... Because I always want to be fair, there are a couple of contexts where we find the mention of worshiping in the context of being together. Acts 13, verse 2. While they were worshiping, the word there is one of service, again, borrowed from this Old Testament form of worship. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So we find the church doing at least three things here, if not four things. There is worshiping, there is fasting, there is praying, and there is likely prophesying. That's the Holy Spirit setting apart for them. The question is, does one of these words encapsulate everything of what they're doing? So in other words, if you think of this as worship that describes what they're doing, then fasting would not be included a part of it, praying would not be included a part of it, and the prophesying would not be included a part of it. Or they're doing all of these things together, and worship is an element of what they do when they come together. So is the word worship to be inclusive of all the other activities, or is a worship a part of something they did when they came together? The other text where we see this is 1 Corinthians 14, 25. After the secrets of the unbeliever's heart are disclosed, that person will bow down before God and worshiping him, declaring, God is really among you. Here we have language of an unbeliever who comes into the midst, and in the process of the behavior of the Christians, he becomes convinced of God and his truth, and that person will then respond by worshiping him. But here, once again, the worship is not the term that is used to describe what is happening when the people come together. Now, Craig, I'm confused. What are you saying, and what's the point? My point is simply this, that the New Testament prefers to use language of coming together to describe this event that we're doing right now 
not worship. This does not mean that the church does not worship when it's together, but worship is one aspect, one part, or element of the ultimate purpose of our coming together. Howard Marshall says it this way, it is the actual coming together which is significant. It's not that we come together in order to do something else, we come together in order to be together as believers as we participate in these different things. See, it's not just the attention and honor that we give to God that is important when we come together. It's what we give to each other that is equally important. We're going to talk more about that next week, but I want us to just briefly look at Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to, again, the language is not, not neglecting to worship, but to what? Not neglecting to meet together, as it is the habit of some. But encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, let's be clear about what this text does not say. It does not say, don't stop coming together, because if you do, you might not get to heaven. It's not what it says. You ever heard the joke, everybody's lined up to get into heaven, and there's a, you know, a lot of celebrating at the front and working its way in the back line. The guy said, what are they celebrating? He said, they just announced Wednesdays don't count. Sometimes that's how we view it. You know, you go because you don't get to go to heaven if you don't go. But that's not what this is saying. Sometimes we say um, things like, we, well, don't stop coming together because if not, God get, won't give you what you need to get through the week. That's not what this text is saying. It's not saying, um, don't stop coming together because if you do, you're going to hurt God's feeling and then he's going to be really mean to you. It says, don't stop coming together for what reason? Because you need to be there to encourage one another. So why do we come together? We come together in order to encourage one another. And I would, I would suggest that if we do not come together, we cannot then encourage one another. See, it seems like a key part of what hap- what's happening, and again, we'll unpack that next week, is what we do in terms of our relationship with each other. I mean, what if we changed our language to refer to these times we came together as the assembly or together time? See, I might be able to say, I can worship by myself, and I would say, that's true. You can worship by yourself, but can I say, I can assemble together on my own? Ooh, that's a little harder to pull off, isn't it? I might say, I can worship by myself, but can I say, I can encourage others without being with others? Well, no, I can't. If the primary purpose is coming together, not primarily to worship, but to be an encouragement, then something is missing when we're not a part of what's happening when we come together. I think there's a good example in what we see of, of southern rural black churches in the 1900s. James Cone, who is an African-American theologian, he says that in southern rural blacks that they had two outlets for dealing with racial injustice. He said the first was the blues at the juke joints on Friday nights and Saturday nights, or it was the churches on Sunday morning and in the evening week gatherings. Here's how Richard Wright describes what churches meant. Our churches were where we dipped our tired bodies in the cool springs of hope. He goes on to write, Our church, our going to church on Sunday is like placing our ear to another's chest to hear the unquenchable murmur of the human heart. For that community, church was not just about giving God his due, but it was about encouraging each other. And when God sees his people encourage one another, guess what? His name is honored. His name is lifted up. 
and he is magnified in the process. I believe that there's a lot that we need to learn about community, about what we do when we come together. My prayer is that we will be a people who wholly embrace the notion that all of life is worship. Every moment of every day. Moreover, I pray that we will be a people who wholly embrace the notion that our gatherings are vital and significant to our expression of Christian faith. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Um, you have an opportunity to be encouraged. Uh, I'm going to be back. Some other folks will be in the back. If you want somebody to pray with, uh, if you need a little bit of extra encouragement, just come and find us in the back while we stand and while we sing this song together.